Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, Matt. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. The big take stories coming out of Bloomberg News are just awesome, awesome reporting, awesome journalism. There's some big takes, and then there's some really big takes. And this story today <laughs> is a really big stake. Uh, it's a big topic. Uh, the Amazon, the rainforest. Uh, we know about the risk to that rainforest. I thought I did until I started reading this story. Jessica Bryce joins us. She's a senior editor for Latin American News uh, from the uh, Sao Paulo, joining us on the phone. Jessica, all right, the Amazon rainforest nears point of no return in Brazil land grab. Can you just let us step us out, step out 30,000 feet and just frame the issue for us? I think most of our listeners have a sense that, okay, the rainforest is at risk, but how at risk? Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so the rainforest uh, it, deforestation has been an issue for decades. Um, it's been a crisis in the making for decades. Um, but recently what we're seeing is that it's reaching this point where it's this the rainforest in many ways is sort of one giant organism organism it's this it's this ecosystem that depends on other parts of the ecosystem and what we're seeing is that as the burns worsen uh, not only is our large parts of the amazon no mm. longer pulling greenhouse gases from the air but they're actually contributing and accelerating climate change and we're nearing a point where the amazon will no longer be, an, be a rainforest. It will turn into a savanna. And that's important because not only because of the, its role as, you know, in cleaning the air that we breathe, but also because it regulates uh, the weather for South America. And South America is a huge producer of food for the globe. And so, so, you know, losing the Amazon, going over that point, it's a very serious problem. For everyone. So, first everyone. of all, Jessica, I learned so much reading this story. And I just think it's a fantastic piece of journalism. Um, there must have been mind-numbing amounts of research <laughs> that went into this document and interviews, and I just thought it was so good. Um, one, of the, one of the central um, themes that I took from this is we all benefit from the Amazon rainforest, but um, Brazil wants to be somehow compensated for that by the rest of the world, or they threaten they will go and take the value out of it themselves. And, you know, you interviewed so many people who were just so poor they didn't have shoes and went into this rainforest in order to make a living. I mean, what else are they going to do, right? Unless the rest of the world steps in and, and helps Brazil do something. Because it's not, it doesn't seem really fair if we all enjoy a resource that, um, you know, they have to foot the bill or carry the debt or however you want to see it. Absolutely. And that's, that's a key part of the argument and sort of the culture and the mindset down here in Brazil. Brazil, deforestation has been um, tragic. Brazil has lost a lot of its Amazon. It still has 80%, 80% or so of its natural vegetation, which covers uh, two-thirds of the land in Brazil. The government's argument is that there's no other country in the world that really has that much rainforest and has preserved that much of its natural forest, and it's not wrong, right? 
However, it is a, an incredibly important resource in, tor- in terms of you know, cleaning the air, but also in the commodities it holds. And yet Brazil and the 24 million people who live around the Amazon are incredibly poor, right? What you're seeing, however, is that this argument of we need to help the poor is being manipulated in a way. And of so course. Right. And so that the poor are being, you know, they do they do go in there and they are driving a lot of this deforestation. But that land often ends up into, you know, it turns into sort of industrial um, uh, farming operations. Well, and they'd probably be poor no matter what. I think it's a lot like the Middle East, right, in that, you know, most of the world's oil reserves are there and we have to all pay to use them. And as a result, there are so many billionaire Saudi princes. Um, (laughs) In this case, it is as if, though, we're, we're all getting that oil for free, and that's, I think, the good part of Bolsonaro's argument. Of course, the, the bad part is he doesn't really care about this resource, it seems, from the story, and um, he's willing to just shred it. Right. And, and, you know, one of the arguments the Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro government has really pushed for payments to private property owners in order to preserve their force. A system like that would be incredibly problematic, uh, not only because Brazil's government, Brazil has a history of, of corruption, just terrible corruption down here, but also like the forest that's being preserved is not as efficient in cleaning our air and, and you know, uh, producing the rains that we need um, as the native forest. And by that, I mean that these forests, the, the, the Amazon has these magnificent hardwoods that are just, you know, hundreds of years old and they're, um, you know, 11 feet in diameter. And even if you're preserving the forest, the private property owners are preserving that forest, they're still cutting down those trees because there's demand in global export markets for those trees. And so it, uh, the system in which they're proposing, the solution in which they're proposing is very problematic. Is there any solution that is being embraced by the world's economy, some of the world's uh, governing bodies to perhaps, is there a solution out there that some people can coalesce around? You know, I think that the narrative, the solution that the world is talking about, that narrative needs to change. What's happening is that there's a, there's a, a problem with the land policy and in, here in Brazil. And this, you know, the government incentives that really push people to drive the, uh, to, to deforest the Amazon. The world values, is valuing that deforestation because they're buying all of the products that come from the Amazon region. Um, soybeans and soy products, I believe the exports in 2020 out of Brazil that were valued at $35 billion. Um, nuts that come out of Brazil, which can be produced sustainably. It was only $100 million. So there's, there's just no, you know, I think the world, it's very important that the world has put a lot of pressure on, on beef companies. And I think you're seeing some changes. I think that some of the beef companies are taking it seriously. But I think you also need to, the, you know, international governments also need to look at, okay, we're de- buying this stuff. Right. You know, maybe we need to rethink our demand and, and, because the world does have great power in, in, in but, making those sort of it, demands that they want to But do. it's not like we're going to ever not want to buy as much beef as we can or Brazilian mahogany. I think it, it seems to me eventually we're going to have to pay up. Um, but the story is incredible, and I, I so want to see these rainforests. It sounds just 
unbelievably beautiful. Jessica Bryce, senior editor for Latin American News. This is Bloomberg. You know, this is really, I think, one of the themes of this year has been meme stocks and Robin Hood. We've seen hearings on Capitol Hill. Pretty much everybody knows what it is. I feel like it's kind of like the new TikTok, um, the new Snapchat in a sense, Hmm. because this is what the kids are doing. And by kids, I mean, you know, like uh, middle-aged white men (laughs) sitting in their parents' basements. Let's bring in Crystal C. right now. She is um, a Bloomberg News reporter who's been covering this story from the get-go for us. She joins us in the Interactive Brokers studio here at 731 Lexington Avenue. So, Crystal, $38, that's the indication right now. Not so great, is it? It isn't so great. Um, on an IPO day, on the first day, you usually expect a deal to pop a little bit. Some deals go up to 100%. So for now, they're looking flat. We are still a couple of hours, I imagine, away from the actual trade, so it could go up. But it's looking like the first trade wouldn't be significantly higher than where they priced it. We, we've been talking to... Uh IPO specialists over the past couple of days who say the sweet spot would be a pop of something like 30%, right? If it doubles on the first day, Vlad left a ton of money on the table. And if it doesn't do anything, then there's no hype. So you do want to see a pop, but you don't want to see it too much. I mean, Paul knows this probably better than anybody because he's priced IPOs for a living. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think one of the, the wild cards here is there is a uh, higher than typical retail allocation. So I wonder how that's going to affect kind of not only the opening of, of the stock, but maybe the, you know, the early days of trading. Yeah, it's an interesting experiment. I don't think anybody has allocated this many shares to retail investors. From sources, we are, we've reported that they're actually Done. They actually allocated 20 to 25 percent of the entire IPO to retail investors. And that's not it. They're, they have extremely high volume on the first day also because they relax the lockup. So yeah. if you're an insider, you can sell oh, up to is 15%. Right? Is that right? Yeah. On, on the day of pricing? Of the first, wow. of the first day. So Whereas the, the traditional lockup might be six months, right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah, so this is actually hmm. a huge flood of shares that could come in. Potential, on, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're an insider who believes in the company, then you're not going to do that. Well, I think certainly not before the pop, right? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, so I mean, is the expectation here that the underwriters? I mean, it's you know, I I guess we saw just coming across the Bloomberg terminal, maybe twelve thirty one p.m. Wall Street time is when it may open, and even that feels a little bit late relative to some other deals. Is that also a maybe a, a, a red flag here? Uh, not necessarily a red flag, but when you have so much volume, I think it makes sense that it's taking longer. But I think overall, Wall Street has been taking their sweet time with opening IPOs lately. We have seen deals open after 1 p.m., so we could be sitting here for a while. Even on the NYSE? I mean, Paul and I were talking about, you know, we remember back in the day when they would open things in an hour and a half after the bell. Um, it's, it feels to me like it's NASDAQ that takes this long. Well, they actually both take... A while. And, and I think there is a regulation. There's a requirement. You, you can't actually open it within the first two hours. So they want to have a proper kind of market discovery period on the first trade. Um, 
I mean, it's it's kind of the same system. One is electronic, and the other one you have like actual people, market makers running around. So we actually saw on the live stream that there is someone,、um, Jay Heller at Nasdaq. He's the person <laughs> sitting there opening the trade. So yeah, I think it's really up to him. We can, we, I mean, it could be it could be another five minutes. It could、right. be another hour. All right. So.、Um This was a traditional IPO,、uh, as opposed to a direct listing, as opposed to merging with a SPAC. What, what did the company say about why they chose an IPO? So there is, I would say, still a little bit of a stigma with going to a SPAC,、okay. especially when you're a very, very large company. You have a lot of VCs in it.、Um, the stigma is still that you know the SPAC used to be something done by second tier, third tier、yep. companies, and You don't want to do that,、um, but、it's、I would say tough to say, find a thirty billion dollars back. Also, <laughs> it's、right? it's tough, but not unheard of.、Um, the grab went public at over forty billion through a SPAC.、Um, but what I would say is actually the direct listing and the IPO have actually blurred a lot, especially with、um, relaxed lockup measures like the like、uh, the fifteen percent. So with all of that, it actually kind of looks a little bit like a direct yep. listing. Yep. Are you one of the ten million seven hundred thousand degenerates on Wall Street bets? I am not, but I pay attention. I've just looked. I was just scrolling through Wall Street bets to see. There's not a lot of positive、um, DD about Robinhood. I, I would have thought that this crew was going to get behind it, but they don't really seem that amped on buying Robinhood shares. Yeah, it seems like like retail investors. At least some of them have beef with Robinhood after the whole GameStop saga, and they ah true, good point. They didn't、yeah. understand why they couldn't、yep. trade at the、right. high. They couldn't sell. They、yep. were welcome to buy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us, Crystal. See,、uh, U.S. deals IPO reporter covers all that good stuff for Bloomberg News. All right, active investing, passive investing. We've been having that discussion for a long time. As more and more money goes passive, index investing. We've been having that discussion. But how about you know introducing a thematic element to Since index? Since Jack Bogle, basically, yes, exactly right. For like fifty、right. years now, exactly right.、Um, it, it's it's a thing, I guess, as, as the kids would say. Rahul Sen Sharma joins us. Rahul is a managing partner at Index.、Uh, Rahul, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts on thematic indexing. What is it, and kind of give us a sense of where it is in the in the marketplace right now. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, at a very high level, thematic. Indexing is building an index that gains exposure or targets a particular theme.、Um, so you could look at a theme like cloud computing, for example, or cybersecurity, or robotics, or clean energy. These are examples of thematic indexes that we've built that have been popular and that have been licensed for typically ETFs here in the U.S. and overseas that have gained a lot of assets over the last few years and really reached a,、uh, a tipping point. So it's bringing factors just like a step further, basically, and allowing. Everybody, not just hedge funds, to get in. Right. I mean, we were one of the early kind of innovators in the thematic indexing space, and what we realized was it's not a very easy space to access, like with factors. With factors, I mean, there are screens that you can easily run to to, to identify factors and to identify companies that qualify. Themes often cut across sectors and industries on a global basis.、Uh, a good example of that would be 5G technology, or again,、um, cybersecurity. So what you need to do there when you're accessing a theme is you need to cast a global net. You need to identify、um, what is really relevant to that theme, and then you've got to go company by company to identify companies that are generating typically a majority of their revenue 
from a theme like cloud computing or cybersecurity or robotics and AI. Um, so it is different than Factor, but it is kind of a logical extension there, and it does solve a problem, right? I mean, you hear all the time about people who are very interested in looking at or gaining exposure to a particular concept, but they don't really know where to start, right? They might have one company that they know or a few companies, but when it comes to a thematic index, we've really done the research for them, and they can gain exposure to an entire theme and the companies uh, within that theme through, through an index and through, a, through an ETF. All right, so Raul, here's the dumb question of uh, this segment. What's the difference between thematic indexing and buying an ETF? Well, you cannot invest directly in an index. So the way it typically works is we will build an index, and then we will license it to an ETF issuer, and Got the it. ETF issuer will launch a fund that tracks the index. Now, a very simple example that most of you guys would know would be um, the S&P 500 with SPY or IVV, that's an ETF that tracks, an e that tracks an index. We do the same with other ETF issuers. What's some of the... It's basically screening, right? The, the hard yeah. part is screening these things. So that's the, what yeah. you're saying is when, um, when, when, when you look at ETF, uh, ESG, I mean, or when you look at space, for example, it's not so easy to screen as profitability or buybacks or something where you can just super easily use the Bloomberg to do it. And um, there's a lot of choice out there. Do you, do you have uh, you know, difficulty making those choices when you're looking at certain themes? Because I, I imagine you could cast the net wide and you could also be, for example, space. You could just do rockets and satellites, but you could also look at telecoms and LIDAR and a whole bunch of other things. That's exactly, you're hitting the nail on the head. So it's, it's really a multi-part problem. The first is, how do you define that theme? And um, like you said, do we look at rockets? Do we look at satellites? Do we look at uh, other types of trajectory technology? So that's part one. Um, it's defining the theme, and our research team does that. Um, and then part two is, of course, identifying the companies that are generating typically revenue, and ideally a majority of their revenue from that theme. Because you don't want a company that's generating you know, negligible amounts of revenue from a theme, because that's not really the exposure that you're looking for, right? You want a company that really is tied to that concept. Um, and that's what we've been doing for, for six plus years now. And it typically is a revenue-focused uh, target. Uh, we have a dedicated team of analysts spread across a couple of offices uh, globally uh, that do this and have done this for, for six years now. What are some of the more popular uh, indexes that you've recently worked on? Where's the demand from the marketplace? Well, I would say it's in a couple of different areas. The first is, of course, technology. Um, I think people get technology because it's something that they interact with on a daily basis. So our 5G uh, technology index has done uh, quite well. We licensed that here to an issuer called First Trust for an ETF that's raised over a billion dollars. Um, robotics and artificial intelligence is another one of our early themes that has also been quite successful. Uh, that's with an ETF here. Uh, with Global X funds, that's raised over two and a half billion dollars. And then, of course, another one um, that has been in the news a lot lately has been infrastructure. So we have a U.S. infrastructure index that we built probably around five years ago now um, that has recently taken off and, again, has a few billion dollars in it. Um, and healthcare, healthcare as well, working from home, cloud computing. And now we've also seen clean energy really, I think, start to hit a critical mass from a business perspective. And as a result, people are starting to look at it more from an investment perspective as well. By the way, infrastructure is a is the perfect example of something that would be difficult to define because, you know, 50% of Americans think of it as just roads, bridges, and airports. Yep. And 50%, uh, I'm thinking basically there's a Republican-Democrat split, right? 
Democrats will think of it as child care and nutrition and right. fascinating stuff, Rahul. Great having you on. Hope we can get you back. Rahul San Sharma there. He's a managing partner at Index. And as he's been explaining to us, um, they put together thematic indexes and license them out to um, ETF companies. And that's really the way the kids uh, love to invest these days. And, and you can understand why this is Bloomberg. I want to bring in Bill Smith. He's a managing director at CBIZ, MHM's national tax office. And um, we got this infrastructure deal voted on late last night. Um, they're going to, seems like they're going to work it out now and make it happen. Um, wh- what do we know about the tax changes? This is what the market seems to care about. Uh, David Costin from Goldman Sachs was on the other day. He said the only things that matter for the market right now are rates and tax policy. Well, what we don't know is virtually anything about taxes because we've got <laughs> the, the two bills going and there's no guarantee that the one the, that has been agreed upon, the bipartisan one, is going anywhere because essentially all they did was agree to bring it up for debate. It had been blocked for debate, so it couldn't go anywhere. So now it's up for debate on the Senate floor Hopefully they get it passed. We don't really have tax provisions in that one. The one that will contain the tax provisions most likely is the fall-targeted $3.5 trillion bill that they're going to try and push through using reconciliation, meaning they don't have to get their 60 votes in the Senate. They only need the all the Democrats and the vice president to get that through. So they're, they are right now debating on what the pay-fors for that will be, meaning – How are they going to pay for that bill? Because reconciliation doesn't allow you to increase the deficit over the 10-year budget window. So we have what I like to call the wish list, which is the green book put out by Treasury that puts some flesh on the bones of the Biden tax plans. But everything seems to be up for debate. The scariest part of that, perhaps, was the reference to The increase in capital gains to ordinary income rates, if you're over a million dollars, was going to be effective as of the quote-unquote announcement date, which wasn't defined, but could have been pushed back as late as April 28th. So we think that there's probably going to be no retroactivity because the bill has gone so deep into the year. So I think we're probably safe that we're not going to have that retroactive capital gains increase. But we really don't know what's going to go in because there's going to be a lot of fighting. The Republicans bounce the increase to the IRS budget out. We'll see if that sneaks back in. That has a very large return on investments. So it would be a huge pay for. If that's out, it's going to put pressure on the Democrats to put tax increases into that $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill that is supposed to go through in the fall at some point. Bill, there's a lot of folks out there that say, hey, we don't necessarily need to raise tax rates. What we need to do is tighten the loopholes for the tax laws that are already on the books. Is that a viable argument or is that a political talking point? Well, considering that I've been doing this for 40 plus years and that's talked about every single year, (laughs) I would say that uh, it's, it's easier said than done. Let's put it that way. So it's much easier to know and understand that you're going to bring in $100 billion if you raise the corporate rate by 1% than to tighten the so-called loopholes. Now, 
if you want to talk about tightening a loophole, the so-called minimum tax on corporations in the Biden plan would be just that, because you have corporations with lots and lots of book income and no taxable income. So that would be the same people who say we want to tighten loopholes are generally going to be opposed to that minimum corporate tax that is proposed in the Biden plan. So that's that's often a political talking point and a very difficult uh, thing to implement. I can understand that. I mean, why is the federal government trying to influence behavior with tax policy? Why are there any loopholes to begin with? Um, Wouldn't it be better if we just had a straight tax that you knew you had to pay? I mean, frankly, I don't understand why there's a corporate tax, because you know, owners of the, those companies already pay tax on profits, dividends, um, capital gains. So why tax the company again on the corporate structure? Well, as I've said for years and years and years, we have moved to a, a system where all social policy is enacted through the tax code, which isn't perhaps the best way to do it. But that seems to be where we are. And the problem is once you get things in that benefit a certain group, it's very difficult to get them out because you're going to have people fighting very hard to leave them the way they are. So uh, should we enact social policy through the tax code? That's for someone higher than my pay grade. But it seems like we're certainly doing it and have been doing it for years and years and years and years. And on the corporate tax, why? Why is there a corporate tax? I think it's because it's an easy revenue raiser, for one thing. And you have all the pass-through entities where a majority of small business is conducted. So that's only one level of tax. If you're in an LLC or an S corporation, the owners, as you know, pay the tax, not the entity generally. But with corporations, and particularly with large corporations, you have a much broader base of ownership of mom and pops. So they're extracting the toll at the corporate level. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Bill Smith, Managing Director, CBIZ, MHM's National Tax Office. Taxes are going up, but still a lot of work to be done in Washington uh, on those details. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.